0: Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 is a very well-known verse. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We're living in an era when knowledge, according to the book of Daniel, is being vastly increased. We can see from technology and from record-keeping and from just the sheer interaction that people have with one another, that there's a, a vast degree of information that, uh, is constantly being revamped and re-recorded and communicated. It's ironic that at the same time that that's true, there is an incredible ignorance in our culture. Ignorance of things that really matter. When Hosea talks about people being destroyed for lack of knowledge, it's certainly not talking about just general information. Uh, It's talking about the knowledge uh, that that makes life matter. The knowledge of the holy, the book of Psalms calls it. It's knowledge, this kind of knowledge, that produces faith. Not the other way around. It's it's not faith that produces knowledge. It's knowledge that produces faith. Job chapter 21 verses 14 and 15 says, They say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the almighty that we should serve him and what profit should we have if we pray to him? That's the attitude of this current system. Psalm ninety-four verses eight through ten says, "Consider and understand, you stupid ones. When will you become wise? It is God who teaches man knowledge." Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So, in that sense, it it seems to say that knowledge begins with faith, but that's not really true. The knowledge of the information, the revelation of God's heart that comes to us through not only the revelation of scripture, but just the natural created order. From that, we begin to build our faith in the one who set that order in motion. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 52, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Now, let me just stop here and say that in some translations, it says you've taken away the key for knowledge or the key of knowledge. And either one is proper in the Greek text. And both of them have a slightly different element in in their meaning, and they both are valid. Woe to you, scribes, for you have taken away the key that opens the door to knowledge, is the way some people interpret it. But actually what Jesus is, is saying here is you've taken away the key, which is knowledge. You did not go in, and you hinder those who want to go in there's a there's a level of knowledge that is both natural and supernatural psalm 139 verse 1 through 18 that whole first o- opening uh, verses of psalm 139 but i want to specify this one statement after david says I, I, i'm i'm fearfully and wonderfully made it's it's a mystery he's looking at the scientific reality of the human body but it lifts him to a place of awe. And so he says, what, what I am and what you've created me to be, is, this is knowledge that is too wonderful for me. He's not saying it's it's too much for me to understand physiology or, or anatomy. He's saying just looking at the way you've intricately made everything takes me to a place that is beyond the mere observation of physicality. We, we know that in the history of science. Uh, the, the more of a revelation of God there is in a culture, the more science has prospered, real science, not pseudoscience. The Hebrew here in Psalm 139, in, in the opening words, reveals this is a poem about knowledge. What God knows about the microcosm and what God knows about the macrocosm. What he knows about me and what I know about him. And what I know he knows about me. See how this whole dance of physical natural knowledge and supernatural revelation are intertwined. Proverbs chapter 10 Verse 14, we all know this verse, uh, the wise store up knowledge, the idea of seeking truth to understand both practical insight and worshipful awe. That's the idea that's expressed here. This is just the opposite of just gathering information, getting knowledge, knowledge that just puffs us up, Paul says. Mere knowledge, information puffs us up. 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 2 talks about the knowledge uh, that is apart from God and how it leads to death. Ever learning, but uh, never coming to the knowledge of the truth, Second Timothy chapter 3 says. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy is understanding. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. Is the knowledge of the holy knowledge from God or of God? And the answer is yes. (laughs) It's from God and it's of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show forth his handiwork this 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 is symbolized in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, versus the tree of life, in Genesis chapter three. Now, Satan, the the, the word Satan, adversary, uh, or the devil, diabolos, diabolos, literally means that which seeks to divide. That's part of. The nature of evil is to separate and divide in order to destroy. Uh, And so you hear people talk about secular knowledge versus spiritual knowledge. And you hear that mostly in circles where the secular is considered the only valid knowledge and uh the only respect they might give to spiritual knowledge is to acknowledge that it somehow does maybe exist in another dimension but it's it has no place in the realm of normal knowledge which is diabolical demonic manipulation and falsehood what is secular knowledge is knowledge secular? Well, what is reality? Is reality is there secular reality versus spiritual reality? I mean, I'm perfectly aware that there is spiritual reality that is higher. But what I'm talking about is the way our culture, by the powers of, the principalities and powers of darkness that manipulate it, seek to separate the knowledge of God or knowledge about God from the realm of respected, affirmed knowledge, so that some arrogant people, uh, like Richard Dawkins says, that Oxford University shouldn't even have uh, a department of theology, because that's not a a valid uh, concept to be uh, studied in a university. University meaning one truth. See, He says, well, spiritual knowledge is not part of the realm of true truth. It's only part of the realm of spirituality, which as far as he's concerned is vapid, unreal, ghost-like, fantastic, uh, illusory. Dr. Alan Sandage, noted astronomer, stated that his career as an atheist, uh, Uh, That's how he started, but he confessed, quote, It's my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is far more complicated than can be explained by science. We can't understand the universe in any clear way without the supernatural, Dr. Sandage says. Um, In his testimony, then, which came first? Secular knowledge or sacred knowledge? Well, neither, for as you can see, there is no such division. There is only knowledge, knowledge of what is real. The real universe that pointed him to the real reality behind the universe all was working together as one one manifestation of knowledge. Each awareness of a part of reality is only a fragment and cannot stand alone. That it, It's in any realm of your life that statement is true. Any awareness of a part of reality is only a fragment and cannot stand alone. On every side of that part of reality, which you have seen, are other connected parts you have not yet seen. Truth, ultimate, complete reality, truth with a capital T, is actually God himself, which is why Jesus said, I am the truth. So it is ludicrous to try to divide knowledge into secular versus sacred, or to try to divide your life that way. Now the reason I'm spending time on this is because the church has swallowed this lie on levels that we may not really be willing to face maybe maybe we don't see it maybe we do see it and just try to avoid facing it but a great number of people who are maybe and i'm not saying they're not christians but they they i remember a man uh, that i worked with years ago who was a very successful businessman, and he was a believer. I'm not saying he wasn't a believer, but he actually made the statement in my presence, speaking to a group of other men. He said, uh, well, Christianity is one thing, and business is something else. And I just looked at him like he had grown horns, and uh, he saw how foolish that statement was, thankfully. But the fact is, he wasn't a baby Christian. He'd been around the things of God and the things of church. That, see, that's our problem. Uh, he'd been around Christian culture to the point that he had actually imbibed the lie of secularism and was quoting it as if it was a valid point. And I want to tell you, if he had that, even it was even if it was unconscious, it was ma- manipulating his decision making and deforming his spiritual, uh, his spirit, his life. See, I'm making the same error right now. I started to say it was deforming his spiritual life, but that's a redundancy. If it's deforming his spiritual life, it's deforming his life because there is no di- di- dichotomy between our life and our spiritual life. It's all one. It's all the same thing. That's my whole point. I'm spending all these opening minutes to try to drive home that one point. But see, it's so woven into our culture and into our vernacular that even though I am standing against the idea of two separate realities that are in opposition to one another or at least can't connect to one another, even though uh, my whole point is to bring that out, I have found it in my language and conversation and my presentation even right now because it so sneaks in. How does that affect our whole world? Well, um, let me tell you how it's affecting the life of the church. Uh, this I'm still speaking in direct connection to what we talked about last time. Uh, how do I unite my heart to fear the name of the Lord in every area of my life. Jesus gave, uh, he, he told us what matters is loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and then loving our neighbor as ourselves. All that sums up all that matters to God and that directly affects every area of your life. So, You see, it's the spirit of Antichrist that wants to divide us in these ways. Uh, I mentioned diabolos. uh, Diabolos in Greek, where we get the word devil. It means to divide or to throw a stumbling block into the feet so you fall over. Uh, It means to tear apart reality into broken divisions. Sacred, secular denies the incarnation. The false idea that sets in motion a destructive domino effect of brokenness if you if you give in to that idea. Clergy, laity. Spiritual, physical. Well these just named two glaring examples, both which need to be examined on their own in greater detail, but don't let me get sidetracked on that. I could, I could go off on an important uh, rabbit trail on clergy, laity divisions, or spiritual, physical divisions, or sacred, secular divisions, but I, let's stay on, on track, because uh, all those need their own focus. Uh, let's look more clearly at the one we are aimed at right now, and that's the false separation of knowledge versus faith, which that produces all those two all those dichotomies I just listed, and more. Scripture never seeks to offer proof of God by showing proofs of him in nature. It only addresses the obvious, that, quote, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show forth his handiwork. Paul, referring to that, uh, says in Romans chapter 1, that therefore, because the heavens declare the glory of God, I mean, he's not saying, he's not saying, look at the heavens, there's proof that there's a God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look at the heavens, for they declare they 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 make the statement not that this proves there's a God, they make the statement this is what God is like. It declares his glory. It's a declaration. You may think that's well, Clay, you're making the same statement just using different words. No, I'm not making the same statement. There's a difference in me trying to prove there's a God by the pointing to the physical world. And pointing to the physical world and saying God has declared himself this way and he's also declared himself in man. And so Paul takes those two principles and he says, look, the the heavens above declare the glory of God and the image of God is seen in man so that therefore man is without excuse. For when they knew God, they refused that knowledge. See, knowledge and faith cannot be divided. They suppress the truth so they can act in opposition to the truth, Paul says. I'm just, I'm just paraphrasing what he said, but that's exactly what he said. He said, men are not ignorant of the truth. They're not in, they're not in trouble because they're ignorant. They're in trouble because they're not ignorant, but they, they suppress the truth because they love unrighteousness. Now, what is unrighteousness? That doesn't, see, that doesn't mean they, uh, deny the Ten Commandments so they can fornicate, although that is part of the problem. They, they deny the Ten Commandments so they can kill, uh, that, that is part of the problem. But that's not the root problem. The root problem is they deny the existence of God so they can create a scenario of their own choosing. It's exactly what Satan said in the Garden of Eden uh, when he said, you, you will not surely die. You will you will both be as gods knowing Deciding for yourself. The word knowing there doesn't mean you'll come into information you don't have. It means you will decide what information you want to embrace as opposed to other information you don't want to embrace. And Paul is addressing all of that in Romans chapter 1. He's just using different languages like I, I am now. Paul goes on to say, "...that which may be known of God..." is manifested by the created order. Again, he's not saying, look at the stars, that proves there's a God. He's saying, look at the stars and you will see some of the character of God. But in order to avoid reality, men's imaginations came up with empty reasonings because their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became
1: fools.
0: This is the story, as I just mentioned, behind the so-called sacred-secular split, or the false separation between knowledge and faith. The secularist says, there, there, you poor, superstitious ignoramuses in religion, you can have your vapid faith, but we have solid knowledge. The destructive results of that idea And that idea, by the way, is not popular because it's easily found to be true. It's popular because all of our hearts are wicked. Obviously, this idea undercuts the Christian's ability to see himself as a possessor of true knowledge, leading to an ever weaker ability to stand on equal footing with the world of ideas. So, as a result, evangelicalism more than more than Roman Catholicism evangelicalism has retreated into what I call the Christian ghetto, where it can sing songs to each other and uh, hide behind the four walls of our church buildings and avoid reality, avoid confronting reality. Avoid addressing and wrestling with the world of ideas where we're called to be. And as a result of not being able to be in the world of ideas, we become uh, useless. Like Jesus said, when salt has lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men, which is exactly what has happened to us uh, in the culture. Uh, But even worse uh, than driving us uh, into the churches, it drove us out of the place where the gospel could be heard by the world it so desperately needs, uh, we so desperately need to, to reach. And so we ended up singing songs from the early 1900s all the way through my boyhood, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his works around me and you know and it goes and I hope I'm not ruining one of your favorite songs, but the fact is how did how we sang those songs when I was a boy. He lives, he lives uh, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. Well, he lives within my heart. (laughs) That's not the way Paul explained why he knew Jesus lived. Paul didn't ever take false refuge from pagan unbelief by either hiding from the true arguments or singing Christian songs in the Christian ghetto. No, he went to the heart of Greco-Roman philosophy and like all the first century church, he met their arguments with, quote, many infallible proofs, Acts chapter 1. He didn't sing about knowing the risen Lord Jesus because Jesus lived in his heart, but he gave specific, time, place, affirmed, corroborated, eyewitness, testimony, facts, and knowledge that Jesus had risen from the dead and was indeed Lord over all things, including Caesar. He didn't separate church and state, see. He didn't say Christians aren't supposed to be involved in politics. The whole er early church was known for its stance, not against Caesar, but for Christ. But being for Christ meant... Uh, they would not bow to to Caesar and call him Lord. They would only call Jesus Lord. You separate your faith from your politics in that setting, and you are not a Christian. You are a betrayer of the Lord Jesus. Anyway, he didn't seek to get people to emotionally be moved in their feelings, which is all we do most of the time. Not all we do, but you know what I'm saying. He gave them the truth to which his audience could respond or reject. Now, I'm not saying your emotions are not moved upon when you hear the truth. They certainly can be. Uh, Remember there in Acts chapter 2, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. The hearing of the truth cut them to the heart and did move their emotions. I'm not saying there's no emotion in it. But when all you have is emotion and all you're aiming at is emotion, like I've seen happen in a million, uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, in know, several dozen Christian youth camps when I was a kid. When I got to be older, I was involved in Christian youth camps. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit never did anything real in those camps. But let's face it, any youth pastor knows, any pastor knows, any parent knows, any kid knows that you can get all revved up in your emotions and get kids up at the altar and get them all crying in each other's arms, and you know the guys also try to work their way around to the cute girl and hope to you know get her to cry in his arms. You know you know how that <laughs> you know how that goes. And I'm not saying there wasn't some real things that happened in those scenarios, but for the most part, it only took two or three days of being back in the soup of godless culture for us to see how many kids were really grasped by the mind and the heart or if they were just grasped by their hormones, even Christianized hormones. Paul never separated faith From knowledge. Uh, Nor did any of the first century believers. It never crossed their mind to separate faith as some ephemeral otherworldly spookiness or to check their feelings and see what kind of emotions they were having in response to the truth. You would not hear them speak of taking a leap of faith. Or you would never hear them say, uh, there's no proof. You have to just take it by faith. They wouldn't even think like that. Faith is rooted and grounded in knowledge about God. And that knowledge comes from God. And that knowledge is as solid and provable and trustworthy as any other kind of knowledge that is raised above the knowledge of the holy in the secular world, uh, what God has revealed about himself can be trusted. All inquiry must begin with a presupposition. All knowledge is that way. all things have to have a certain degree of presupposition about them. We don't arrive here doubting and demanding proof for every aspect of our existence. We have some, many aspects of our life that are just presupposed as true. I won't try to prove that. I think common sense will help you understand it if you need examples of it. The self-evident things point to the invisible things. All truth about reality, both visible and invisible, lead to the ultimate reality, himself Reality, which is God. So faith cannot ever be a mindless leap of, in the dark or a vapid, psyched-up, superstitious mental state. Faith has substance. It is substantial. It's not gaseous. It is the response in you to God's expression of his good in. Intention towards you—that's what faith is. There's a there's there's levels of faith. There's first, you know, just basically the belief that something greater than you made you. But then uh, faith grows. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Faith is the substance of what you hope for. Well, what do you hope for? Look inside your own heart right now. Tell me what you long for. What you hope for. Well, faith longs for that to be made real for you. And you you are to grow in faith, grow in the confidence that that is true. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says. It's the evidence... One translation says it's the title deed. What is a title deed? It's the legal evidence that you own the property that you may not even be able to look at. But you you have the title deed. Uh, I I heard about an old friend of mine who retired from the ministry and he sells tractors. I mean, he's, he loves tractors and he sells tractors, and he just recently sold a tractor he'd never seen before. He he bought a tractor he'd never seen before, and then sold it uh, at a two hundred percent profit. And it never it, he never came to see it. He never saw it. He had the title deed though. And uh, he just passed the title deed on. That was a great illustration of what this verse says. Faith is the title deed. We have God says, "I am. I am the power behind all you long for, all you hope for, all you care about. I'm the. I'm the." The, the power behind all that is good and right and true in you that you long for, for your loved ones, for your children, for your life, for your crops, for your business, for all the things you care about. No separation between uh, the knowledge of crops and the knowledge of God. The evidence, of the, the, the title deed of things that you can't see. So faith is your declaration against Opposing proof that God is speaking of a higher greater reality than what is evident to the limit limitations of your of your five senses let me let me say that let me read that one more time. Faith is your declaration against the opposing demonic proofs that claim God is not there or God is not trustworthy. When you are standing in faith, you are not just saying, I believe in God. You are saying, I do not believe the lies of the, the principalities and powers. That God, God is speaking of a higher and greater reality than what is evident to my limited five senses. But I believe God against those senses. I don't believe God in opposition to those senses as much as I believe God is higher than those senses. And faith doesn't say there's no problem. Faith says there is God. It is saying to the world system ruled by Satan that you believe God, not your, just your five senses. Remember what we said a while ago about Diabolos, the one who seeks to split apart one of the ways he does that is to try to split you off from God by drawing you into your five senses or your emotions and getting you to live there as if that is reality and there's, there's no other reality. To be ruled only by or informed only by your senses. Paul says that is death. Now, please don't misunderstand Paul. He's not saying God's going to kill you if you don't believe the right things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you live only in your five senses. He says this in Romans. He says it in First and Second Corinthians. He says if you only live in your five sense-controlled realm, you're denying the the parent realm that created the five sense realm. And you're claiming the five sense realm is the only realm of authority there is, and you're limiting yourself only to the realm of the five senses, and it's a realm of death. He's not saying God's going to kill you, he's saying that you're living in an atmosphere of death, and if you're breathing and eating and sleeping and talking that that realm, there's nothing in it but death, death. It's like, you know, if you go in here with this only thing you can breathe is carbon monoxide you're going to die. He's not saying I'll kill you because you're breathing carbon monoxide. He's saying if you breathe it, it'll kill you. To be ruled only by or informed only by your five senses is to align yourself with Satan against God. It is to agree with Satan, did God say? No, you shall not die, but you shall be as gods. You will decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. Remember, I referred to that just a few minutes ago. So no wonder Hebrews 11.6 goes on to say, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Here again, let's stop for a minute and take the religious glasses off and read this for what, what it's trying to communicate. It is impossible to please God. You know, have you ever said to somebody, man, you are impossible to please? (laughs) I better not give examples of that. (laughs) Sometimes Mary will say that to me on certain issues, but sometimes I've said it to her on certain issues. You're impossible to please. That's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about perfectionism, but it is talking about perfection. God is not perfectionistic like he's just thin skinned and a prima donna and uh, wants only things his way because it's his way or the highway he happens to just be the source of all reality it's not his way or the highway because he's uh petty it's because there ain't no other highway I mean he's, he's somebody says well why it's arrogant to say Jesus is the only way Uh That's got nothing to do with arrogance. There's only one driveway in front of my house. It's the only way. There ain't any other driveway in front of my house. If you drive up in any other portion of the front, you will not be in the driveway. You will be in Mary's flowers, and you then may surely die. (laughs) Without faith, it is impossible to please God because faith. Faith is the realm of seeing the invisible and believing God's character. If you get out of that realm, it's impossible to, to please God. Does that make sense? But whatever comes, whoever comes to God, must believe that God exists. Yeah, that's a, that's a given. But that's not enough. Must also believe that he is a rewarder. God is, God wants good for you. He wants good for your children. He wants good for your city. He wants good for your nation and good for the whole world. See, the definition of love is the desire for good in, on behalf of the one that you love. So Ephesians 2.8, we all can quote it if, if you've ever been to a Baptist Sunday school. For by grace are you saved through faith. Now, here again, don't listen to that with religious ears and just, by grace are you saved through faith. And What is it saying? What is grace? Well, sadly, you might have been taught grace is unmerited favor. That's a lousy. I used to say that's the, an inadequate meaning of the word grace. Now I just say it like I really feel it. It's a lousy definition of grace. I don't know who first came up with it, but it is it is lousy. Grace is power for good. So God gives power for good that is set in motion on your behalf in order to reveal his good intentions for you. And that grace is what you place your faith in. So it is having faith in God's gracious goodness towards you that that causes you to be saved. Now here again, let's stop and examine this. Does that mean, uh, I'm afraid this is what it means in some people's minds. It's too many people's minds. By unmerited favor, through belief in unmerited favor, you are legally declared saved. See how how boring that is? No. By supernatural impartation of divine goodness on your behalf, set in motion for your ultimate good, That's grace. For by grace, you are saved. You are being saved. You were saved. You are saved. You shall be saved. This is not talking about some legal transaction that you do at the courthouse of heaven where you could say, thanks God, I got my uh, get out of hell card, and I'll go run, live my life best I can. Uh, Every now and then I'll holler for help if it gets too crazy. Other than that, please leave me alone until... uh, the rapture. Now, I'm not. I'm not being facetious. I'm really not. This is exactly the kind of Christianity I grew up in. Uh, had a little bit of truth in it. Uh, it's like it's like really, really weak soup that had just a couple of veggies in it and maybe a, a thimble full of meat. But the rest of it was just as vapid as I just described. For by the supernatural intervention of God's goodness on your behalf. You are being delivered from all evil. That's the meaning of saved. You are being delivered from all evil. And that's not of yourselves, obviously. I mean, all you got to do is picture yourself falling off of a 100-story building and trying to save yourself by grabbing your own belt loops and pulling up as you hit the ground. Of Of course, you can't save yourself. You, you you begin to believe that God is good and that He intends good for you, and intending good is what is meant by love. Okay, isn't this this isn't this richer and more moving and more motivating and more sustaining than what we so often have been told is scriptures on salvation? We grow in faith. We, I mean, just think about starting. If you started there, I didn't start there. I didn't start there. I didn't learn that until later. I, I had a, I had a saving faith that caused me to cry out to God whenever I made continuous, repeated messes, and God would come save me, and, and He would come save me, and He would He would come save me. But little by little, by His grace, His enter. What is grace? When I say by his grace, I want you to get to where when you hear the word grace, you do not even think of unmerited favor. You think of the intervening power of God on your behalf for your good because you are loved. That's what grace is. And you have faith in that grace. What is faith? It is the title deed of things you don't fully see yet. You may not see or feel that grace working, but you have confidence in that grace because you have confidence in the character of the one who told you of that grace. And so by doing that, you get yourself out of the realm of darkness and into the realm of God the Father and his dear Son. And he's translated you. Out of that kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son that's salvation that's real salvation you see i'm leading I'm leading up to a point I hadn't made my point yet to the degree that we lack in faith, we are subject to faith's opposites, fear, doubt, hopelessness, and to the degree that we lack in love. We are subject to love's opposites, also fear, but also hate, strife, anxiety. I mean, how many believers do you know? I've been one of them at times in the past when, you know, though I was a believer, my life was full of pain and strife and heartache and conflict. Jesus came to deliver me from my sins and from sin, the effects of sin. And he was going to do it. And if his, if his grace had to hurt me in order to heal me, he loved me enough to do it. Thank God, thank God. Now how many of us, though we believe in Jesus, we, we have saving faith that Jesus has forgiven our sins through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are living in a hellish conflict. Uh, and you begin to really get an idea. After you've come to the Lord, you get a better idea of the hellishness of hell than you had before maybe you met the Lord. That's a whole nother subject, but I'll just mention it. Hellish struggles with Painful elements, such as we just listed, death, the the atmosphere is death. Not so much that you necessarily want to be with Jesus, but you might say, Lord, I'd rather die than have to put up with this. You're so hurt by the war, both around you and inside you, that even though you're a believer, you just kind of wish you could get out of this conflict. Well, the Lord won't let you get out of that conflict. Uh, he, he's got you in it to learn how to live above it. Anyway, if you adjust your conception of salvation to uh, to what Jesus said, you will immediately alter your attitude about conflict, both within and without. You will stop seeing salvation as A one-time insurance deal made in heaven. And you will embrace the life of Jesus that he himself imparts to you and also through you. And you will begin to know a peace in the midst of conflict. For you will begin seeing such conflict through the eyes that look with the love of faith. Ongoing daily, moment by moment, faith in God who is with and in you and love which is able to forgive and keep forgiving and believes for the kingdom of God to begin to enter wherever you are for it is in you and where you are is the kingdom. Then scripture that seemed to make little real sense to you before starts coming alive like Romans chapter 14 verse 7 the kingdom of God is not in what you eat or what you drink but it is righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit you ever read that verse You what in the world has it got to do with anything Paul's just been talking about the conflict that was arising in the Roman church over food laws whether you should eat meat or not eat meat, and so forth. And they, they were having a big conflict about it. And, and Paul just sums up his statement by saying, the kingdom of God has nothing to do with food laws. It's not in what you eat or drink or what you don't eat or don't drink. But the kingdom of God is righteousness. That's that's everything being put right. Peace that's not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness and joy. Enjoying life. Righteousness, peace, and joy. But where is it? It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you may be, I mean, how many of us have ever had really heartbreaking conflicts around a dinner table? I know I have. I know most families have. Some families, that's all they ever knew. Some families don't ever have a dinner table. They just throw, uh, store-bought pizza at each other. Uh, but you know what I'm saying. What should be a time of fellowship and friendship and love and feet under the table and hearts open to one another it becomes, I, I, I've never been able to comprehend parents, for instance, who wait until their child is trying to swallow and digest food to start getting on to him about some Conflict they have with the child. I, I, I can't comprehend it. I don't understand people taking somebody out to lunch so they can confront them with some difficult subject. I don't understand that. You got a problem with me? Don't be taking me to lunch. Just tell me your problem and we'll get past the problem. Then when we can eat and enjoy it and enjoy each other, let's go, let's go do that. But for heaven's sakes, don't, uh, don't, don't come, you know, feed the fatted calf before you kill it. Anyway, righteousness, peace, and joy. Have you ever been in a situation where the power within you began to be unleashed through you and caused the atmosphere of unrighteousness, cruelty, conflict, and ungodliness to begin to subside, and it was subsiding because you were there. Now, sadly, I know of cases where the, the the trouble was there because I was there. I had to grow. I had to learn. I had to learn better. I'm still learning better. I'm still, still learning. I'm still being given opportunities to learn, to let the river flow out of me, to calm the atmosphere where unrighteousness and lack of peace and joylessness has taken over. Because the kingdom of God that I've been transferred out into from the kingdom of darkness, that kingdom is in me all the time, and I'm salt of the earth, and I'm the light of the world. So I can pray, and I can release the presence of Jesus through me into the most ungodly situations. Whether it looks like it got fully set right, immediately, that's not that doesn't matter because, see, you're operating in faith. You're operating in a realm where the title deed has given you the victory whether you can see it yet or not. Okay. If you embrace this truth, then you will no longer live in anticipation of daily moment-by-moment heartaches. But when the heartaches come, instead of your heart aching, your heart will rise up with faith that the kingdom in you is going to flow through you and bring a change in the atmosphere. Now, I'd like to go on with that, but I need to stop here and uh, kind of give us a breather and let's review a little bit what we've covered so far so that it makes sense to you. I I hope it'll make sense to you. We started off talking about the fact that faith is rooted not in fantasy, not in imaginative, fanciful, I hope so isms. Faith is rooted in real knowledge. Then we talked about the fact that knowledge cannot be divided because reality cannot be divided. There's no such thing as secular versus sacred knowledge, because there's no such thing as secular reality versus sacred reality. It's all reality. But Diabolos, whose name means the divider, the the accuser, the the, the stumbler, the one who, who seeks to divide and conquer. Diabolos seeks to split us into two realms so our spirit doesn't touch our flesh and our flesh, flesh is not ruled over by our spirit. Now grace tell me again what grace is not. Grace is not unmerited favor. Grace is the power of the presence of God's goodness set in motion on your behalf into your ungracious situations for your ultimate good, which means that sometimes you may think God is abandoning you when God is really so close to you that you can't feel him because he's carrying you so close. And he's doing that for your ultimate good. So grace is at work through faith. Grace works through faith. Grace the idea here this is uh, this is Galatians chapter what is it? Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Faith works by love. Faith works by love. And Faith, grace works through faith. Faith works by love. Grace works through faith. Faith works by love. I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Faith honors God's character. Faith says, I believe God, I trust God, See, faith says, I, 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 come to God because I believe that He is, but then it goes beyond that and says, I believe He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And I diligently seek Him. That means I seek Him every day. I seek Him in the ups and downs, the in and outs, the good and the bad, the difficulty and the blessing times. I seek Him in everything. I trust Him in everything. I have come to understand, like Paul said, I've I know whom I have believed, and I have become persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day, whatever that day is. I used to love that song in the the Baptist Seminole. I still love it. I know whom I have believed, because it's just pure scripture. I have come to know the one that I first believed in. I can say that. I'm not Paul, but I'll tell you what. I have come to know the one I first believed in and I have become fully persuaded though I still have some persuasion that could grow. I have I have become persuaded that he is able to keep that, keep safe that which I have committed to him against whatever day is ahead. Well, Faith grows. Love grows. I've come to know him because I love him. I've come to love him because I know him. The more I know him, the more I love him. The more I love him, the more I know him. That's true in human relationships. But it begins with faith. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, faith you know, these three three things abide, faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. There'll come a day when we won't need faith anymore because we'll have everything we need. It'll be right in front of us. We'll see it. And that's what hope is. Hope is the guaranteed future of what's to come. Faith is the seeing of that which is invisible, but we have the title deed for it, but faith and hope will one day be done away with in the sense of needing something that undergirds us. These three abide, but the, the the, the, the final abiding is in love. The final abiding is in love, where hope is fulfilled and faith is no longer necessary. But my whole point is this. Faith grows, love grows. We must bring an end to the false idea that has permeated so much of the church that our relationship to Jesus is some kind of one time event that legally provides for you to get a get out of hell card and to eventually go to heaven that that is all the new testament really has to say the rest of it's just secondary uh, only for people that are really seriously into religion that whole that whole thing is it i you know there was a time when we would think of it as less than mature Christianity. But the more you embrace the message of Jesus, the more you see that it is not just less than real Christianity, it is Antichrist, false religion. I'm not saying everybody that was in it is lost. I'm just saying that the spirit of Antichrist has set the agenda for Christianized religious culturalism that has produced the weakness and brokenness and impotence and confusion that we now uh, see so much of our world drowning in. The Holy Spirit will not leave us there. He will bring us out of it, but he will not just bring us out of it corporately. He will bring you out of it individually to whatever degree he has to deal with it in your life and in my life. Some of you have told me that you felt the presence and pressure of the fire of God in your life on certain issues that you've been kind of slack about or even indifferent about. Things that you used to just let slide are beginning to really be uh, issues in your heart. I know that's true for me, and I, I pray it increases. I pray it increases for all of us. So... Over the next few uh, sessions, as the Lord directs, we're going to spend our time unpacking what is the, what is the cause of our, our weakness, our lack of reality, our lack of salt and light in both our private lives and therefore in the life of the corporate church. And what is the Holy Spirit calling us to, to correct that? God helping us. We'll, we'll gain some insights maybe that we've not gotten before. Y'all surely you know this is not original with me. I mean, thank God for Dallas Willard, thank God for John Ortberg, thank God for Richard Foster and for many, many other people I could name. Thank God for the the people they learned from before them. I told you a while ago, uh all truth has to begin somewhere in our thinking. We are we have to recognize some things are just presuppositions based on uh, self-evident reality. And it it should be a presupposition with self-evident reality that the Christianity that we have called Christianity in our culture for the last X number of decades is not only lacking, it could in some ways even be a false presentation altogether because only the truth the, uh, tr- truth will make us free. And to whatever degree we're not free, to that degree we're not walking in truth. Uh, and so we, we pray for, for the grace to operate in our lives through faith, manifested in love, to whatever degree it takes, whatever cost it may require of us, nothing is too great nothing is too great for this pearl of great price father we pray for every man and woman and boy and girl in the sound of my voice we pray father that you will take what i have inadequately tried to communicate and let the holy spirit turn it into diamonds let it let the holy spirit make it gold and silver and precious stones Uh, Lord, please transform it into that which moves our hearts to do more than just think, oh, oh, that was good. But we, we begin to want your reality in our lives in every detail and begin to do whatever it takes to bring that reality, to diligently seek you instead of just passively tip our hat to you. Even if we thought tipping our hat was genuine, Please, Father, take us further up and further in, we pray. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening.